From Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. And welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. Come on in, weary traveler. Hang your cloak on a peg. Grab a stool and come gather around the fire. There are stories to be told, and you are indeed among friends. Documentary filmmaker Ali Siadatan is here to discuss Gods of the Nations, the influence of the fallen angels over the ancient world and the civilized world after Christ, right up to the present day, their connection to the modern-day UFO and alien abduction phenomenon. Carlos Kajina is the technical producer. Ryan White is the live stream producer. And yes, we're live streaming on my YouTube channel, Strange Planet. Please uh, pay us a visit there and hit the red sub, uh, sub button. Now, before we get rolling here, I want to read a letter that has been circulating in some of the Greek Orthodox churches uh, throughout the GTA. The author is a mystery, although I I have a mis- uh, I, I have a, a suspicion as to who it is, but I'm not going to divulge that. Uh, nevertheless, let me read this. Quote, For it is a commandment of the Lord not to be silent at a time when the faith is in jeopardy. Speak, Scripture says, and hold not thy peace. That's from St. Theodore the Studite. And on November the 11th, Remembrance Day, a couple of weeks ago here in Canada, many Christians in Canada also commemorate St. Theodore the Studite, who left us with many pearls of wisdom, including the important quote above. And how is our faith not currently in jeopardy? We are human beings created in the image of God. And while our humanity at first compelled us to obey the lockdowns to protect each other, today our humanity is being intentionally attacked and diminished by dark forces. We are being told to cover our faces, to restrict our breathing, to stay away from each other, to socially impair our children, to let our sick die alone to delay our medical checkups, to shutter our businesses and endanger our livelihoods and to turn our entire lives upside down. Even worse, we are being told by our lawmakers that our houses of worship, our spiritual hospitals, are not essential to our lives. A direct attack on our humanity. And lastly, most devastating to our humanity. The lockdowns around the world are triggering mass poverty and unimaginable loneliness, pain, hunger, and untimely death. All this is antithetical to our Christian faith. Since the very beginning, this so-called pandemic has strained credulity. Now, many months later, the real Untainted data has confirmed both the exaggerated nature and the mismanaged handling of this crisis. A novel coronavirus, but from a familiar family of viruses for which we have some innate immunity. A mortality rate very similar to seasonal flu, also as confirmed by many epidemiologists. A widely adopted testing threshold poorly suited for live virus detection, but perfectly suited for case inflation. A widely adopted liberal approach to recording mortality, but perfectly suited for death inflation. A much hyped, incredulous, and oft-repeated mantra that, quote, life will return to normal after the vaccine, end quote. A vaccine that will forever alter the DNA of human beings while supposedly protecting against a virus with a 99% survival rate. A host of promising medicines and treatment protocols for the infected that have been suppressed and unduly rejected and kept from us by the medical establishment. Unfortunately, our Christian love for neighbor has been used against us, and our compliance with all of the measures to date and our collective silence has unintentionally and mistakenly Signaled our, signaled our willingness to accept the new normal. We should not accept it. 
Globalist oligarchs posing as philanthropists cannot hide their giddiness as our world is pushed towards the brink of chaos and towards mass mandatory vaccination and transhumanism. Our leader in Ottawa seems gleeful and dutifully participatory in our own country's social and financial destruction with the same push towards globalist agendas that do not benefit Canadians. And local leaders accept billions of dollars in assistance while doling out funds in the hopes that this assuages our loss of humanity and the attack on our faith. We should not accept this. Uh, The letter then goes on to encourage uh, people to attend the prayer demonstration that took place this afternoon at the Ontario Legislature, Queen's Park, that took place today at 3 o'clock. It ends with, Our humanity is our strength. Our faith is our calling. And the time has come to hold not our peace. I thought that was worth sharing with you. My uh, guest for the full two hours tonight, Ali Siadatan, produced a documentary, I believe it's uh, now over a decade ago, called UFOs, Angels, and Gods, in which he set out to solve the UFO mystery. And he unveiled the UFO presence throughout the ages and in the Bible. And so we are going to discuss that, as I say, for the next two hours, Ali is the founder of Think Again Productions in Canada, a multimedia teaching ministry shedding light on mysteries and treasures of scriptural knowledge, which is making the Bible more real than ever. Ali has found evidence keeps agreeing with the Bible's tale, from biblical cities peering through the sand to alien abductions and prophetic events. In 2006, ah, more than 10 years ago, Think Again Productions released the groundbreaking documentary UFOs, Angels, and Gods, On Google Video, it received 270,000 views in nine months. His research into UFOs has inspired him to work on a work of fiction in progress, as well as a secondary documentary on the rise of the Antichrist, titled Goliath Rising, Hybrids, Nephilim, and Titans. Ali Siadatan, welcome back to uh, The Conspiracy Show. How are you, my friend? Uh, Fine, thank you, Richard. Thank you for having me. Looking forward to, to the show. So when we think of the gods, the gods that are mentioned in the Bible, gods plural, we today, looking back, we tend to think of the gods as, for example, the Greek gods of the Greek pantheon or the the Greek mythology. We think of gods as legends and mythology, but it is your contention that the gods of the ancient world – were actual beings, correct? They were real. Yes. Um, there's kind of a, a, a process, if you will, a story that brought that perspective to our mind. I mean, it's, it's true. We all are living in this idea that there's all these fairy tales, all these myths uh, that the Greeks had and the Romans had and, and you know, people before them and after them. And the Egyptians, been, the Mayans. Yeah, the Mayans, the Mesopotamians, the Egyptians, really the Persians, the Indians, the Chinese, all of the polytheistic tradition of humanity that has lasted for thousands of years longer than monotheism, all of that, you know, everything before the time of monotheism, before the time uh, of Christ, is all just fairy tales. You know, you can call it myth, but that's what myth implies for us, mythos. Um, and that we're functioning in that world view, and suddenly uh, we're looking into this whole UFO phenomenon, and it appears very real and very well documented. And the mind turns to the past, to all of these tales of flying uh, beings, whether they be angels in the Bible or gods um, in, in, in the pagan traditions, and not to say that they were aliens, no, just to say that they too seem to have displayed the same qualities. They come from another place. They come from the heavens. They visit the nations. They visit the earth. They have their own chariots. And so as you were looking and pondering these things, and uh, the reality of it uh, was coming to life, 
I was walking into a study. We were studying the Bible. And the gentleman who was leading it, he said to me, you know, uh, I know where the throne of Satan is. And I said, really? You know where the throne of Satan is? He said, yes. It's in the city of Pergamum. And I thought, really? Where did you get that from? And so he showed me that in Revelation chapter 2, when one of the letters that the Lord writes to seven congregations, you know, people don't realize that Jesus wrote letters, not just Paul and Peter and Jude and John, but Jesus himself wrote seven letters to seven uh, congregations in Asia Minor, but these letters are tucked away um, in the beginnings of the book of Revelation. And so it's not a book that we, we read often. It's very mysterious, very hard to understand. So we don't realize these letters are there. And in one of these letters to the Church of Pergamum, um, the Lord says, you know, the throne of Satan is there, and he mentions it twice. And so I thought, okay, I need to look into this. And when I went into um, the University of Toronto as a graduate student in 1996, 1997, I uh, was doing graduate studies at UFC. I, have, I had access to the magnificent library system. I found out that, that yes, Pergamum was, in fact, you know, a, a city that had been excavated by Carl Human, who was a German uh, you know, engineer turned archaeologist, and he had found something magnificent there that he had unearthed. It was the altar of Zeus. And he said in his notes that if there was anything that ever, you know, that Christ may have spoken of that was literal, that was in that city, it must have been this altar. And so it's interesting because the altar of Zeus was the most important altar to Zeus in the entire Greco-Roman world. All the way till the ends of the Western Roman Empire, sacrifices were commissioned in that altar, sometimes 24-7. It was seen as the main altar of the chief, you know, spiritual force behind this incredible empire, the Greco-Roman world. And so it was a great, place of great importance, and, in, and, and the, the congregation that was there, they were arrested because they were claiming monotheism, they refused to worship, you know, Zeus, and they were right living in the city. The leader, Antipas, that the Lord refers to, was taken into this altar and put in a brazen bull, because the symbol of Zeus was the bull, and he was boiled, he was burnt, while he was in this, you know, bronze bull. They heated it from underneath, and the cries of the sacrifices offered to Zeus, that was the idea, you know, the one who transgressed had been sacrificed, the, the monotheists were being, you know, speaking against the polytheists, the voices, the cries, the pains would come out of the mouth of the bull, energizing it and bringing it to life, and everyone could hear it. Apparently, church historians record that Antipas prayed for his congregation um, as he was cooking inside of this bull until his last breath. And so, no, just, Ali, yeah. just uh, let me let me just uh, remind people then the, the the connection here is that the throne of Satan. Jesus must have been referring to the altar of Zeus because this is the most prominent uh, religious, if I can use that word, uh, location in Pergamum. He must have been referring to the altar of Zeus when he called it the throne of Satan. It seemed to us. And so the Carl Human agreed as well, the archaeologist. So I thought, that's interesting. I, I photocopied it, I brought it to him, and I said, look, even the archaeologist who dug it up thinks that this is what Christ must, must have been referring to. And so the question then came to our minds, what, is, is the Lord making a connection here between the chief uh, of the pantheon of the Greco-Roman world, you know, Zeus, known as Jupiter to the Romans, and, and Satan, the chief of the fallen angels? Is that why he's brought us to this passage? Is that why he's connected this altar and Satan to this deity of the Greeks and the Romans? And if so, then could there be a connection between the gods of the ancient world and these fallen angels. Is that what he's pointing to? And so with that idea, what I did is I um, printed out all the passages in the Old and New Testament where the word gods was referred to, and I began to read them, and to my surprise, I, I found over 500 passages. I, haven't, I have never counted how many they were. I stop always counting at 500. And so I started to read it at once, and as I started to pour into this, I realized this is so interesting because it compares, it presents the God of Israel as the leader of these 
multitude of beings. He's called the God of gods. It's one of the titles given to him. And I thought, why would God be called the God of mythological beings? Um, in these beings, these gods, are admonished. They, they are judged, like in, in the story of the Exodus, that God comes and he will walk you know, in Egypt and he will judge the gods of Egypt. And I thought, why would God judge mythological beings? They are told to worship God, like in Psalms 97, verse 7 and 9. They are told to worship God. And you think, why would these beings be instructed to worship God? And it says that God judges among the gods. And I thought that in this sense it means rules, not in the, not in the sense of in Exodus where he comes to carry out judgment. But he rules among the gods. And I thought, why would he rule among mythological beings? And suddenly the whole perspective began to change and there was the reading these hundreds of passages in one sitting just the whole it, like a blindness that's removed it poured into my mind and i realized wow these passages are talking about real beings these guys were real now a lot of things are coming into focus like daniel chapter 10 talks about an angel that brings a message to daniel from the throne of the universe and he's intercepted by the principality that's behind the Persian Empire, the Prince of Persia, he's called. And then he goes to fight the Prince of Greece. And I thought, of course, these beings would be real. This would make sense. Or when Satan says to Jesus in his temptations, all the kingdoms of the earth have been given to me. I have dominion over all of them, he says. And he says, I'll give them to whomever I please, and I'll give them to you if you worship me. So, and wait a minute. In other words... God made a deal with these gods, small g, plural, divvied up the world and said, you can, you'll have dominion over these nations except for one, I'm guessing. And that would be because all countries, uh, all nations seem to have and all civilizations have uh, these origin stories and the role of gods in their origin. Uh, except Israel, they they never talked about you know gods. It was one God, right? Well, that's so, where the story was going. So suddenly, these passages are coming to life, and Daniel and 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 the story of the conversation between the Savior and Satan, it's all coming to life. And I was I was pondering this. I remembered Chuck Missler, who I'd interviewed for my documentary. He used to always say, you know, there is a passage in the Bible that talks about the sons of God. But you won't see it in the Bible we all use. You have to read it in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Bible done several hundred years before the time of Christ, from Hebrew to Greek, a very important copy used by the disciples, used by the early church, quoted by Jesus himself, a very important copy. And, and he, there he talked about Deuteronomy 32, verse 8 and 9. And I thought, I thought yeah, i got to go look that up. So I brought it up and I looked at it, and it said that when God divided the nations and set their boundaries, which happened at the Tower of Babel when he divided the nations, he did it according to the number of the sons of God, the Bene HaElohim, which is an idiom for these beings, these divine beings. We see it even, even in the book of Job. It says that when the earth was created, the sons of God cried out for joy. So they were here even before us. And I thought, okay, so the world was divided and the boundaries were set according to the number of these beings. And God, it says, chose Jacob as his own inheritance. This is Deuteronomy chapter 32, verses 8 and 9. And suddenly now that became like a foundation stone. It made sense. If these, there had been a division and God had you know, given the nations to the control of these beings and chosen Jacob for himself through which he was going to bless all the families of the earth, now this became the cornerstone. Chuck never saw the importance of this in the context of the story of these beings. But this passage was more than just about the sons of God. It was a key passage. Now everything made sense. Why Daniel had these principalities behind the nations. Why Satan was talking to the Lord and saying, look, I have dominion over all the polytheistic pantheons, as you point to, this passage brought them to life. They were not just, you know, random beings. And I thought, this is incredible. And now I had the confidence to say, okay, these beings are real, and I could look deeper into 
you know, who, what did they do to the nations, who they were. And, and we went ahead and we did the research, and I look forward to sharing it with your audience tonight. And then the documentary was released in 2006, and that year something incredible happened. God gave me a sign that sealed the whole matter and confirmed this whole thing, and this was the sign. A store opened right where I was working, and it only sold magazines. I went to see what this new store was, and as I was looking through the magazines, I saw one called Biblical Archaeology. It was the May-June issue of 2006. And I thought, oh, Biblical Archaeology, that's right up my alley. I picked it up, and there was a picture of the altar of Pergamum on it, and it said Satan's throne. And I thought, wow, wow someone's talking about this. So I l- opened it up. And it was an article, an interview, in-depth interview about this whole thing, and it said, yes, the Book of Revelation had a beautiful picture of this altar, which is now in Berlin. And it was an interview with Adela Collins, a uh, theologian from Yale Theological Seminary, from Yale University. And then suddenly, as I'm reading this whole thing about the altar, she says, you know, when the Most High gave each nation its heritage, declares Deuteronomy 32, verse 8, when he divided all mankind, he laid down the boundaries for peoples according to the sons of Israel. A Dead Sea Scroll fragment containing this verse above, however, has the phrase, sons of God, instead of sons of Israel. The Dead Sea Scroll fragment apparently retains a more original form of the text. The Septuagint, the 3rd to 2nd century B.C. translation of the Hebrew Bible into Greek, also has sons of God. The early church father, Justin Martyr, who apparently used a text that preserved sons of God, believed that these sons of God were angels to whom God had entrusted the care of human beings. Justin Martyr also believed, based on Genesis 6, which which tells of the sons of God taking human women as wives, that the offspring of the sons of God and the woman were demons. And so it goes on and on. And this whole idea suddenly... Not only was she covering the idea of the altar, but she was also pointing to the fact that this passage in Deuteronomy, in fact, does say sons of God in the oldest, most renowned copies. And she added what I didn't know. That hey, gotta, Ali, I've got to jump in. We, uh, we've we've got to take a, a break. We'll come back and we'll pick up on that. Uh, we'll also talk about what changed 2,000 years ago that created this upheaval that that ushered in the age of monotheism. Back with more of my conversation with Ali Siadatan as we discuss Gods of the Nation right here on The Conspiracy Show. Take a look around. What do you really see? This is where you can tell all about it. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett. Welcome back. Ali Siadatan from Think Again Productions. Thinkagainproductions.com. UFOs, Angels, and uh, Gods. That is the uh, the documentary. It's been out now nearly 15 years. Uh, but we uh, we sort of continue to unravel or unveil this, this mystery, uh, the origin of, of UFOs, the modern-day UFO phenomenon, the modern-day alien abduction phenomenon, how that fits into the biblical narrative, how it connects to the gods, small g, plural, the gods of the ancient world. So these, these fallen angels, the, the, the princes, the principalities of the air that ruled over the nations of the world, uh, let's talk a little bit about their influence. Presumably, they, they gave these nations technology. They gave these nations rules by which to live. They gave these nations their rulers. Did they not? Did they not give them earthly kings? It seems so. It seems so. This, this sign that God gave us, you know, confirmed that the oldest Hebrew copy, the ones found in the Dead Sea scrolls, also read Sons of God being, being behind these nations. And we knew the Sons of God were being real beings because... That was clear. So now it was easy to look into history and say, if these guys were real beings, what was their influence? What, how had they con- connected to the ancient world? Now that I could take the stories of the gods, the myths, like you said, uh, 
seriously, I could read and say, yes, you know, this particular king, like Hammurabi, you know, he received one of the most ancient law codes after the time of the flood, the code of Hammurabi, it's known. But if you look at it, and we have two original copies left, one in the Louvre Museum of Paris and the other is in the pre-Islamic history um, uh, Museum of Tehran in Iran, and I have seen it there, it, sh- it talks about the first part of the in- tablet, talks about, uh, it's not really a tablet, it's a giant piece of slab stone, very, very tall, where all the law is written, and then on top of it there's a giant man, and he gives a scroll, which is the law, to the king, to the human king who stands before him, Hammurabi. Who is it that's sitting on the throne that gives the law? Well, his name is Shams, and he is known as the sun god. By the time of the Greeks, he will be called Apollo, and he is one of the most influential of these beings. Um, so they did, they did give laws. All of the civilizations, all of the nations, begin with some sort of a divine code handed down that sparks the origin, whether it's the story of Muhammad that gives birth to the great Islamic civilization, or whether it's the story of Moses who comes down from Mount Sinai carrying the tablets of the law and a system of light living that, you know, how do you deal with other nations, with commerce, with marriage, with every aspect of, you know, human life, and uh, this is revealed. There are 613 commandments that Moses brings. And the story of Jesus, a being from, from the heavens, comes to the earth, and his teachings rewrite the Roman Empire. Again, something from above, some instruction from above, given to the human world, is at the foundation of civilization itself. Uh, all of the Indians, you know, with the Vedic texts, the, all of the, the, the Persians and the uh, Zoroastrians, Ahura Mazda, which is, you know, the main text of the, of the Zoroastrian religion, the main religion of the Persian Empire, from the time of Cyrus on to the Islamic conquest um, of the 7th century. This entire the world that we all live in, they have these law codes that that form a society, give us worldview and understanding of the afterlife, of what is right and what's wrong. And then humans learn themselves how to make laws by studying these laws that are handed down. And so this was an incredible contribution of these beings. And then, yes, you're right, the scepter of rule. You know, Jesus, Satan says to Jesus that all the kingdoms of the earth have been given to his dominion, and he can give them to whom he wishes, and he does. There are many kings that, you know, one of the most famous stories is the story of King Minos in the island of Crete, which is the origin of Western civilization, where Zeus himself fathers the line of Minos and, and other lines as well through Hercules and many of, many of the cities that the, that the Lord wrote those letters to in Asia Minor. Those cities, many of them were founded by Nephilim. In fact, in the altar of Zeus itself, there is the name of the Nephilim, who is the founder of the city. He is mentioned in the very sacrificial altar that the priest must uh, sacrifice before he enters into the second chamber, where the spirit of Zeus haunts him, and he receives messages for the emperor. And so this whole... Uh, Sorry, but Ali, were these, were these ancient rulers, these kings, that were the, the spawn of these gods? In other words, they were hybrids. They were, does that mean these kings were giants? Do we know? Some of them were, some of them were, and we do know, like the, the King Minos was very much presented as a hybrid. Even Alexander the Great, it says that, uh, you know, his father wasn't uh, the King of Macedon, Philip of Macedon. His father was, you know, his, his mother uh, was raped by Swan, who was one of the manifestations of Zeus, that he was the son of Zeus. Now, how much of this is, you know, which ones can we trust? I don't know, but there's enough stories. And then there is also the idea of being chosen. All the kings, like when you look at the ancient Persian Empire, the kings of Persia said, you know, that Ahura Mazda had given them the scepter of rule. This idea that rulership comes from heaven is recorded even in the Sumerian list of kings, the most ancient list of human kings. And it says that when kingship descended from heaven to earth, before the flood and after the flood, it records this idea of something being passed down from above an authority. And you look at ancient Mesopotamia, we, anthropologists, they say basically urbanization. What is urbanization? It is 
when humans started to reorganize themselves from patriarchy, from clan living, like the story of Jacob and his family, where there's you know, a patriarch and they're a tribe, to living under priest kings. So in Mesopotamia, these ziggurats appeared, and at the helm of the city was a king who was also a priest of the god of that city. And society had to organize in serving that priest king who then served his god and who received instructions and worldview and many other gifts from each different cities got different gifts, apparently. This is what the writings that have been left behind tell us. This is what anthropologists call urbanization, the reorganizing of human society under the rule of these shepherd kings, Sipar. That's what they were called, shepherd, because they were here to shepherd the flock of the gods. And okay, so but let me ask you something here, Ali. Why would God entrust the nations to fallen angels? Why would he allow them to rule? Well, man at this point in the story is himself cast out and fallen, uh, going back in the Garden of Eden, and man himself is called by the same name, Elohim, as these beings are, and God himself. Man is of the world of God and angels. Man is of the world that might get rewarded and judged and blessed and cursed. Man has is a cosmic being himself and has a relationship with these beings, and man's history can be defined in a larger cosmic history. And in that history, man found himself on the same side of the fence as these beings did. We were essentially their property. And that's why when Jesus died on the cross, the Gospels record that it was done and paid in full. The Greek word totelestai, paid in full. What was paid in full? Well, we were purchased in that blood. Literally, there was a legal transaction. You know, these nations are under you, and this, the, I choose Jacob, but now I'm going to purchase people from all nations to cross the fence and come to this side, because this blood is the price given in the cosmic order. This is the currency that God assigns for the purchase of people back from the realm of Satan into the kingdom of light, and that is exactly what he tells Paul, right. So now it's him. on, right? Now it's officially on between <laughs> between the uh, the fallen angels and and God's God's people, those who accept Christ, right? Now well, the now we, the the, well, the, yeah, the battle is on. It's true. It, it absolutely it begins with Cornelius the centurion who is the first one really officially that comes and suddenly, you know, Peter is a little bit reluctant, you're not really Jewish, you're not kosher, but God prepares Peter's heart and says, don't call unclean what I have called clean. And when he comes down from that vision, there Cornelius, you know, he, the messengers come and say, we're told to take you to this, this centurion. He goes, and he meets him, and he th- receives the Spirit and receives the Gospel, and with that Roman centurion begins a flame that, inflames the world and is only now resting on the shores of California. And that is kind of, you know, the upheaval. Fascinating story. In 2012, I was t- invited well, to I think company. we lost. Um, Did sorry? I lose you? Sorry? We've got to go to a break. Okay, I'll tell you the story uh, and just, I come back to uh, ties into yeah, ho- this whole question ho- of what changed. All right. Years ago. Uh, exactly. We'll uh, we'll pick this up on the other side, and we'll also discuss whether these fallen angels, whether their influence over the the nations, ended after the time of Christ. I think not. Anyway, we'll uh, pick that up on the other side. The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Stay with us. If you have questions and comments, we'd love to hear from you, and we will open the phone lines at the uh, top of this hour. Uh, Ali Siadatan will stay with us into hour two, and we will entertain questions and comments at that time. Just a quick programming note. Next week on the broadcast, author Don Jeffries will be here. Don has actually uh, sat in and guest hosted the uh, the program a couple of times, I believe, over the years. And um, uh, he is the author of Survival of the Richest and Hidden History. And uh, we'll talk about the impact of the lockdown on on the economy uh, and how it has uh, really uh, this self-inflicted wound has destroyed what's left of the middle class, destroyed small businesses, while at the same time enriching uh, those at the top of the food chain. 
surprise, surprise. That's uh, next week, Don Jeffries on the broadcast. Ali Siadatan from Think Again Productions. We're talking about the ancient gods, their connections, connection to the modern-day UFO phenomenon. So we were talking about this influence they had over the ancient world, and then along comes uh, Jesus. He's crucified. The uh, the the uh, the bill has been paid, as it were. So we're freed. But the the influence of the uh, the ancient gods or fallen angels does not end. Um, so, for example, when the the persecution of Christians, uh, I guess it was under Diocletian. Uh, I'm guessing that 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 was that came under direct orders from Apollo, right? Because yes, didn't. They would they would go into the, the and see the oracle of Apollo and get their instructions. Now it's time to persecute the Christians. Yes, the the greatest of all the persecutions, the last one, the tenth one, the uh, is called the Great Persecution. That was carried out by Diocletian. The story is that he sent a messenger to the oracle of Apollo at Delphi, asked the question, "What should I do with the Christians?" Because so many citizens were becoming. Christians, and which was a Jewish religion, uh, which was, you know, the faith of Abraham and monotheism. And Apollo responded that the Christians are the enemies of the gods. And that was enough for Diocletian to suspend the civil rights of Christians, arrest them, confiscate their Bibles and burn it, and torture them until they sacrificed to the gods or died. Why? Because the gods were seen as the backbone of the power of the emperor and of the empire, and the citizens that refused to do that, they were spiritually weakening the empire and the emperor, and many, many, many of the senators of Rome were priests of Jupiter. They were actual priests, and they were also senators. The, the spiritual beliefs, the clergy, and the government were very much intertwined, and the emperor was the representative of the gods, and that is why it was the same in the pharaoh of Egypt, and that's what the, the battle between Moses and the pharaoh and his sorcerers and his gods, it is uh, the same concept. And so the kings of Mesopotamia, these shepherd kings that began urbanization, according to anthropologists, the first cities of the world, they say, began in the south of Iraq. But what does that mean? It means that there were these shepherd kings that appeared, who shepherded the flock of the gods. So this was a common theme from the beginning of the birth of civilization to the time of the Romans. And this is what kind of, you know, brought the Christians at odds. Two spiritual forces were colliding. And, you know, you were saying, okay, so, what was their influence? Their influence, right. other than uh, assigning kingship and giving these codes of civilization, another important thing they did was they had actual offsprings, and that is the story of the Titans and the demigods, and it recorded by all the civilization, and the Bible calls them Nephilim. And so that is a third thing that, you know, uh, was a very important connection they created between their world and ours. Okay, so uh, sorry, after yeah. after the after the nations start to become Christianized, then what happens to the influence of the fallen angels? Because no longer necessarily are they pointing uh, appointing kings and rulers. Right. No longer is their 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 bloodline. Their the hybrids are no longer necessarily ruling. In some cases. Yeah, there were there were still kings. Although interesting, uh, many of the kings uh, would point to their lineage coming from the line of David. Were they being deceptive? I mean, everyone wants to associate themselves with the only throne that heaven recognizes as legitimate on the earth. Obviously, uh, so there's that, and then there's the Merovingian, you know, dynasty that that associates itself with, uh, you know, the line of Jesus, but through Mary, like Jesus and Mary had children, and all of these things... What according happened, to that theory, right, yeah, according, according to the theory, that theory. It's not true. Um, God doesn't have, you know, a wife in that sense. So what is it that happened after their, the time of Jesus? Well, the Spirit of God, which is called the Holy Spirit, was released on a day that was ordained beforehand in God's prophetic calendar. And it is called the Feast of Weeks, or Harvest, and, and in Greek it's called Pentecost. And it was first released into Jerusalem and brought awakening to the Jews, who were the original Christians. 
And then from there, like a wind blowing through the nations, as it poured through the nations, it brought enlightenment. And as people, in a way, remembered waking up from a dream, that before these beings, there was the one who made them all, the God of gods. And they turned to fellowship with the living God. The altars and temples of these beings collapsed. And I've got to tell you this fascinating story that happened to me in 2012, that, you know, again, it was one of these signs as God was leading me on this journey of revelation. I had been invited to go to Israel with 14 other pastors on a pastor's tour, and I don't know how I got myself in there, but they were kind enough to include me. And we went to a place called Caesarea Philippi. It is in the Galilee region, and we were told that you were going there and as we were going, the tour guide told us a story who himself was a very important you know, pastor from eastern Canada. He said that one day Jesus told his disciples, let's go, pick up, we're going to walk up to Caesarea Philippi. And with sandals on those rocky hills, they weren't in an air-conditioned bus uh, tweeting their way there, but <laughs> you know, it took them a whole day, it took us 15 minutes. Um, they got there. It was, it was an arduous march. Then he had a speech, and then they came back. What did, why did they go all the way there for him to tell them what he wanted to tell them? Once we got there, it all made sense. We get there, we get out of the bus, and there's this giant cliff. And this cliff is carved with different temples, pagan temples. When the Romans took over Israel, they chose an administrative city that they created called Caesarea Marinera, where you know Pontius Pilate's officers were. And then the hang on, Philip or uh, Ali. Sorry, we'll get back to uh, Caesarea Philippi in a moment. Okay. Uh, we've got to take another quick time out. This is a short segment. Ali Siadatan stays with us. Back with more of our conversation when the conspiracy show continues. My name is Richard Serrett. Different views make great conversation. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Before we get back to connecting the modern-day UFO phenomenon with the gods of the ancient world, uh, just a reminder that if you enjoy The Conspiracy Show, you might want to check out my podcast, Conspiracy Unlimited. It's more of the same, but more. (laughs) Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. New episodes every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. You can subscribe at conspiracyunlimitedpodcast.com, conspiracyunlimitedpodcast.com, or wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And uh, also for premium subscribers, for less than $2 a month, you get an uh, two extra commercial-free episodes every month, plus access to the vast uh, back catalog, well over 400 episodes now, 460 episodes, I think, Available to premium subscribers, you go to conspiracyunlimitedpodcast.com and uh, click on the uh, the little button that says gain access to premium episodes. All right, uh, Ali, we were uh, talking about Caesarea Philippi, which um, I was populated, obviously, during Jesus' time. Now it's an archaeological site. I think it's in the Golan Heights. Uh, so Jesus uh, went up there with his flock. He, and, uh, and he, he held the speech. He and he went up there, and, and he had this conversation. But now I could see the setting. It was a cliff. And in this cliff were different uh, carvings, uh, entrance points for different pagan temples. Like they had taken a piece of the cliff, made a cave, and out came this giant structure with pillars and a roof that was dedicated to one god, and then another one next to it to another one. It was like where the Roman presence could come and do their sacrifices and worship. And at the base of this cliff, there was a giant opening that's still there, and there used to be water in it. It's very large. And this was called the Gates of Hades. It was kind of water going into the ground. You would, they worshipped their gods, they would sacrifice it and take a sacrifice and tie it up, throw it in this water, and if it kind of vortexed down, it, then your prayer would be answered, your offering was accepted by the gods. If not, it would just sit there, then they weren't accepting it. And this was called the Gates of Hades. And so there's a context. He takes them there, and he says, Who do people say I am? He stands on this rock, and they say, Well... Uh, some people say you're this, some people say you're that, and he says, well, who do you say I am? He says, well, Peter says, you are, you know, the Christ, the Son of the living God. And, And Jesus then responds to him and says that this was a revelation to him. God gave him this insight. And he says, I tell you, 
I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And so suddenly, you know, he says that he's going to build his church, and which is his household, which that's what the word means, the household of Jesus Christ. He's going to build his spiritual family from all around the world, and the gates of Hades, which is this thing this, this, that represents this spiritual structure that's behind these empires, this, these, this place of worship of these beings and the sacrifices made to them, he's literally referring to them, and he says they will not prevail against this new... This is the time of the Messiah. He and his kingdom will rise, and the structure of these beings and the dominance they have over people and over the earth is going to be diminished. And that's Well, here's something he interesting also, there. though, about that location. Caesarea Philippi is adjacent to Mount Hermon. That's uh, true. Where we where we believe the fallen angels sort of descended and and uh, first descended and decided to, I guess you know take women for their their wives and and produce these hybrids, right? Yeah, they they wanted to in, the houses of the fallen angels wanted to you know tie themselves into the race that had been chosen and by God to be made in His image and to carry His instructions into the creation. This is a cosmic tale. You, we have to always, in my opinion, connect it to this saga of incredibly intelligent beings, of, of incredible you know, perception, living a very serious story of which we are a part of, because we are of their world. That's why we are called the sons of Elohim as well. And that's what Adam is called, even in the genealogy of Jesus, that Adam is the son of Elohim, the son of God, because we are of the world of these beings. And so this was, this was a 2012, you know, another clue. Like 2006, God gives us magazine. Yes, this is the verse. This is what it was used. 2012, I'm going to Israel and boom, another piece of the puzzle falls into place. The context of that conversation makes it clear that he's talking about two forces, one that is emerging under him and his people, the other that is here that will be diminished and will not prevail. Now to your question, what happened as the Spirit poured into the nations and the gospel was preached and people were purchased by the blood and freed from the gods the same way that the Passover lamb had freed the Jews, 1300 years before from the gods of Egypt. Now the Passover lamb was freeing anyone who accepted his blood from bondage to the gods of Rome and Greece and Mesopotamia and China and India. And all these beings, people could be freed from bondage to their spiritual forces, um, to their perceptions, to, 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 to their rule. And right, but they didn't, to, they didn't just roll over. They went underground, right? They did go underground. That's one of the things they did. But early on, we read in the Second Corinthian letter that Paul writes. He says, "I won't have you be God, be beguiled the way that you know Eve was beguiled, because Satan can present himself as an angel of light and his ministers as ministers of righteousness." And the concept, context of that letter is that the church, even at the time of Paul, had been infiltrated by the agents of this fallen angel trying to corrupt it. He couldn't. You know, God had his, had his scriptures being written. The letters of Paul were setting people straight, and they were the scriptures of God. So then he decided to kill as many Christians as he possibly could. And it says it is said that the, early, that the church was built in the blood of martyrs, and that's very interesting, because if an army had come out of Israel and put a gun to the head of the emperor and said, convert or die, or if the Roman citizens had taken arms and done something, history would have recorded that in, in not a very good light. But people were dying in a very painful way, being torched as candles given, given to deadly beasts because of this spiritual awakening and this fellowship with the living God through Christ. And so this is how the whole thing was built. He decided, I'm going to kill as many once. That actually made the movement more powerful, and more and more people came on board because they could see how dark and evil it was. Their friends were being killed for no reason. They knew them. They were good people. And now... The, the third uh, strategy came at the Council of Nicaea, it seems, with Constantine. If you can't beat them, join them. And so there was the creation of underground societies that continued to be influential through, you know, Ivy League universities, and, and, and they, they, they influenced the United Nations and influenced things like Agenda 2030. I mean, these underground societies that people who wanted to worship the gods 
and couldn't do it anymore in plain sight, essentially went underground and continued to worship them. And if you look at things like, I don't want to you know, ruffle any feathers, I'm more of a historian, but if you look at the Masons, they do you know, worship these, these beings and this angel of light. And I think it goes back to the ambitions that Satan himself had in Isaiah chapter 14. It talks about the five I wills of Satan. He wants to be worshipped. It says that very clearly there. And I think that is the root of idol worship, this ambition. And they all then decide that they want to be worshipped. So there's the underground societies, there's the false religions, but this is how it continues. And then there is the corrupted Christianity itself. So there's religions created outside to compete with this gospel and this message as it's going through the world. There is a corruption from within, and then there is the dark and secret societies whose job is going to be clandestine. And and the main other explosion I see comes out of um, Europe uh, and out of basically what leads to the Bolshevik Revolution and the rise of socialism, which brings about the secular paradigm, which becomes another one of the veils that is thrown over the nations uh, to compete with the revelation of God as to who we really are and what is really going on. This one hides itself behind the idea that it is not a religion, because it doesn't believe in any of the gods, including the Judeo-Christian one. It considers all of them as... it it champions human reason. But nonetheless, it is one of these thought veils. This one is definitely created by the secret societies, and it kind of comes out of Europe in the 18th century, the Age of Enlightenment, and kicks these revolutions that, that, that create these secular republics, and becomes the chief idea that will be presented through the university and school systems to condition people. So there's, there's all of these thought um, paradigms created as the gospel and the spirit go forward. There is the spirit of the pseudo-Messiah, the Antichristus. And these two spirits, you know, fight and they create worldview. The one essentially points the truth of the Word of God and the Messiah and Christ uh, and his redemptive work, which, you know, uh, makes him the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, and 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 redeems mankind into fellowship with the Living God, and the other that presents alternative perspectives, if you will, that says no, this is not quite true. This is not really the history of man. We don't really know where we came from. Oh, maybe some aliens made us. Maybe this has happened. Maybe who really knows? It's all very foggy. The idea that all God right. loved I've got us to, and uh, gave us the truth. I've got to roll into the. Okay, I've got to roll into the break here, Ali. We're approaching the top of the hour. You'll stay with us, and then we will start connecting those dots between the ancient gods and UFOs, the modern-day UFO phenomenon. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us.